scripture reading, we want to read in Judges chapter 6. Read together in Judges chapter 6. The beginning of the uh, account of Gideon in this book of Judges. Judges 6. I'm going to read the first 24 verses, so bear with me. Join with me. Follow along in your copy of Scripture. Judges 6, verse 1 says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would camp and camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while, he, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent you? So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. 
Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still an Ophrah of the Abiazrites. Brief prayer. Speak, O Lord, through your word today. Encourage us as the God who chastens, but also calls and confirms. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons I enjoy reading biographies is that there's so much more to learn about people than what they're most famous for. Now, for example, last year I read the, uh, the rather hefty volume of biography of Ulysses S. Grant. I mean, everybody knows Grant was a great general of the Northern Army in the Civil War, and he ended up becoming president after that. Well, we, all, we all know that. Everybody knew that. But, and I knew that. But I was intrigued to learn an awful lot about his childhood uh, prior to becoming um, involved as the general of the Northern Forces. His childhood was not a happy childhood. And uh, his, his early years of married life were years marked by failure, one failure after another. I didn't know that about him. And then, of course, he was a very successful general and then became the president of the United States. But after he, be, after he left the office of presidency, again, he's, he was marked by heartache and sorrow as uh, he lost a great deal, was swindled and so forth, then developed cancer and eventually died of that cancer. So all of that that I read in the biography opened up for me um, a much deeper understanding of the man and even of the times in which he lived. And so it is with some of the other famous individuals that I've read about, like the Wright brothers or uh, James Audubon, you know, the Audubon Society, uh, Harry Houdini, the great magician, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the one whose wealth built all these great mansions all over the place, uh, William Jennings Bryan, Robert E. Lee, and then some notable uh, individuals from church history like uh, Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and John Newton and Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Calvin and William Carey and on and on. So it's, it's, a great, it's a great benefit to read biographies so that you can get a fuller picture of individuals who are famous for something. And I think the same is true when we come to the biblical characters, and this one in particular that we're being introduced to today, Gideon. Gideon is, is one of those individuals in the Bible that you learn about very, very early in Sunday school, if you go to church and Sunday school as a young child. You learn about uh, Gideon's great exploit with his 300 men, how he, with 300 men and just jars with uh, candles in it, they ended up defeating this great army. I mean, everybody knows that story if you've been in Sunday school and church for, for most of your life. But there's so much more. There's so much more that the Bible tells us about this individual and things that surround him. So much, in fact, that I want to spend three messages on this guy, Gideon, and uh, do so today, next Sunday, and then on uh, August 22nd. So today, I want to focus on the prelude to Gideon's usefulness, the prelude to usefulness, which centers on the call 
and, and, uh, and confirmation of that call. Next Lord's Day, we'll look at, look at the power of God that was used in, in uh, Gideon's life through conflict and conquest. And then a couple of weeks after that, the postlude to usefulness, which is marked by corruption and chaos. So this morning, what I want us to consider is the fact that in his amazing grace, in his amazing grace, and in his steadfast love, God will deliver his wayward, erring children, his wayward people like the children of Israel were, but he does so by using some unsuspecting individuals, calling them to lead and confirming them in that call. So I want us to see that in, the, in Gideon's life today. Now notice in these first 10 verses that we read that the Lord issues this call to Gideon to deal with a crisis. And the Lord will do that even in the 21st century. He will call individuals to deal with a crisis. And too often that crisis is caused by sin. You see that at the very beginning of the verse, of this chapter, verse 1. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And how often it is that in times of peace, we forget the Lord. The, the memory, the memory of misery caused by sin, it just fades, fades in times of peace. I say it's in times of peace because of what you read just before verse 1. Last thing you read in chapter 5 is, the land had rest for 40 years. So whole generation lives from the time of the last conflict that you read about in chapter 4, and then the, the great hymn that Deborah and Barak, or that Deborah wrote and Deborah and Barak sang in chapter 5, uh, so, so that conflict is over, that battle has been, has been fought and won, and the hymn has been sung, and now the land has rest for 40 years, and in this time of peace and rest, the misery that had been experienced is forgotten. And what is also forgotten is the cause of that previous, uh, that previous misery. Look back at chapter 4 in the first couple of verses of chapter 4. It says, When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. What happened you know, 40-some years ago? What happened 40-some years ago is that Israel sinned, and because of that sin, the misery came upon them, and they needed to be delivered from the hands of Jabin, the king of Hazor, and his, and his forces. In peacetime, it is so easy to forget the misery that, cause, that's, that the cause is caused by sin. And in those times of peace, the, the new song that we sing, the new song of victory, the song of redemption, the song of freedom, that new song loses its freshness, and we kind of quit singing it any longer, talking about the song of chapter 5. Oh, you can imagine how exuberantly that song was initially sung. Deborah and Barak sang it as a, as a duet at first, and then as the words became known, the, the whole congregation joins in together singing this great song of Redemption and how God has delivered us from our enemies with great enthusiasm and exuberance. But 
As the peace prolongs and the rest continues, the song fades and it is no longer sung. And what is happening here in this evil that is done is that God himself is forgotten. The God who chastens for sin, the God who saves from that sin, he is forgotten. That's that's what's involved in they did evil. They forgot God. They forgot that God has commanded them to worship and serve him alone, that God has told them to avoid and, and, and get rid of the gods of the peoples of the land. They forgot that God chastens if he's ignored, if his commands are forgotten. So far too often, the crisis that the Israelites, the children of Israel, God's people here in uh, chapter 6, the crisis is caused by sin. It is no different today. It is no different today. Let us not, let us not be blind to the fact that the crises of our world, the crises of our own nation, are at their root caused by the sins of its people. Let's not lose sight of that. It is sin that will oftentimes create the crises that we experience in life, in our world, in our nation. And the consequences of that sin, we see in this, as this passage continues, the consequences of that sin bring widespread misery. We read about that misery here, right? In verses 1 and 2, they are delivered into the hand of the Midianites. The Midianites prevail against them. And, and there is this despair and fear that results. Have you, have you sensed, by the way, that it seems like the entire world today is living in fear and in a, with a sense of despair? Like, oh no, we don't know what to do. And oh no, we're in for trouble. I mean, it's, we're, this, this is life today. It's life for the Israelites, and you see this at the end of verse 2, that because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, the strongholds, which are in the mountains. So when the, the historian put this down on paper, if you will, uh, th- th- these events, it's after the fact, it's well after the fact, but everybody knows that in this region that he's writing about, up in the mountains, there are these dens, there are these caves that the people built at one time. And he's explaining why, where those things came from. The people were living in such fear of the, the Midianites, and they, they were in such despair that they ran to the mountains so they could hide. They could hide in these caves and in these dens. Verses 3 through 6 talks about the deprivation. The Midianites, along with the Amalekites, and verse 3 tells us the people of the east. It's kind of like a a whole bunch of nomadic, really, groups of people. They all kind of got together, and they said, look, this, this land is a fertile land. They have great harvests. They have wonderful harvests. And we can plunder them. We can handle them. And they came with their camels. And the camels, I mean, this doesn't seem like much of a military force to us. But in the day, uh, the camels were quite a military force to contend with. They were speedy. They were efficient. 
they didn't have to stop very often for water. And, and these the Midianites, the Amalekites, these people of the East, they came on these, these herds of camels and they just plundered the land as, as just about the time the harvest was ready. And that left the Israelites, the inhabitants of the land, utterly impoverished, deprivation and impoverishment. Matthew Henry makes the very accurate point, let all that sin expect to suffer. Let all that return to folly expect to return to misery. Here they are. They have returned to their sin. They have returned to their folly. And what are they experiencing? Suffering and misery. And it is such an intense degree, depth of suffering and misery, that the last part of verse 6 tells us that the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. The crisis of misery will compel people to cry out in anguished cries. So often you see it in human life, in the, even in the 21st century. So often it takes the hitting the bottom of the barrel before the rebellious sinner will turn and look up. And here they are at the bottom of the barrel. I wonder... Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? God, in His mercy and in His grace, so dealt with you in your sin that He brought you to the bottom of the barrel, not to destroy you, but so that you would turn to Him and look to Him and cry out to Him that He might redeem you. That is an act of His grace. Well, the Lord responds to this cry on the part of the Israelites in their misery. He responds in an unusual way. It's a way we haven't seen yet in the book of Judges. Earlier, they'd been in such, you know, in incomparable misery. And when they cried out to the Lord, we read that the Lord raised up a deliverer. You know, he raised up Ehud to deal with Eglon. Uh, he raised up Deborah, the prophetess, who called Barak to go do battle. But now the Lord doesn't just respond to the cry with immediately raising up a judge, a deliverer. Instead, he sends a prophet. And the prophet's message is recording, recorded for us in verses 7 to 10. And he's speaking for the Lord. The prophet is speaking for the Lord. And he's got a three-point outline. They might tell you every good preacher has a three-point outline and end with a poem. Well, this prophet has a three-point outline. He doesn't end with a poem. And it's a very blunt confrontation on the part of this prophet. And his first point is speaking for the Lord. The Lord is saying this, You people have ignored my gracious works. I have been gracious to you. I have worked graciously in your behalf, and you have ignored me. You have ignored those works. It says in verses 8 and 9, look at, look at the list of things God says they've done for you. He says, I brought you up from Egypt. There's the bringing up that communicates the depths from which they were dug. They were in the pit of despair. They were in utter woeful poverty and misery. And the Lord says, I brought you up from Egypt. And then he says, I brought you out 
of the house of bondage. I brought you out of slavery. And then he says, I rescued you in the beginning of verse 9 from the oppression of the Egyptians. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you. You were an oppressed people, but I have, I have rescued you from that oppression. And then he says, I furthermore gave you the, the land of the enemies. I dispossessed your enemies from in front of you. Here were people who came against you and they wanted to destroy you. They wanted, they wanted to annihilate you. They wanted to eliminate you as a nation. But I drove them out before you. And then he says, I gave you their land. I gave you the gift of a place, a gift of possession. I gave you the gift of the land. And then furthermore, God says, I committed myself to you, to being your God. He says this at the beginning of verse 10. I also said to you, I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God, committing himself to him. But the prophet's point here is, speaking for the Lord, you have ignored my gracious works. His second point in his outline, in the first part of verse 10, is he, he says, you have forgotten our covenant. You have forgotten our covenant. When I said to you, I am the Lord your God, that is, that is reflective of the covenant that we made with one another. I am Yahweh, that's the personal name of God. I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God. You see the, the relationship that exists there between God and his people. We are in covenant with one another. I am the Lord, your God. You are my people is the other side of that equation. But you have forgotten that covenant. I am your God, the Lord says, because we both said so. I said, I will be your God, and you said, you will be our God. I am your God, but you've forgotten our covenant. And the third point in this prophet's outline at the end of verse 10 is simply, you've corrupted the faith. You've corrupted the faith. I told you, the Lord said in verse 10, do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. What he's not saying there, the Lord is not saying, I don't want you to be afraid of the gods of the Amorites. No, that's not what he's saying. He is referring to the fear of the gods of the Amorites in the same way he tells us we are to fear the Lord. We are to reverence him. We are to honor him. We are to extol him. We are to worship him. So when the Lord says, I told you, do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're dwelling, what he's saying is, I told you, don't worship those false gods. Don't exalt them. Don't honor them. Don't reverence them. But you have not obeyed my voice. In other words, you have corrupted the faith. So the Lord responds to this cry, this desperate cry for relief, for deliverance, with blunt confrontation. Then he issues a call. Then he issues a call. And he issues this call in verses 11 to 16 in a rather surprising manner. 
The setting for this call is not in the least bit impressive. It's not at all impressive. Verse 11 says, The angel of the Lord came and sat under a terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiazrite, while Joshua, while Gideon, threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. This is not an impressive situation, the setting. Not at all. It is, in fact, it is, in fact, near a place of compromise. What do I mean? Notice, the angel came and sat under this terebinth tree. This terebinth tree. That is a, that's a sacred spot, but not for God, not for the Lord God of Israel. In fact, look down to verse uh, 25. And in verse 25, it is, uh, we discover, a sacred spot near the altar of Baal. It says, it came to pass that same night, the Lord said to Gideon, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal. Look at this, the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock. Now go back to verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. That's often a, a, a place that is near an altar. Under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, that belonged to Joash, Joash, Gideon's father, the one who had this altar to Baal. This angel of the Lord comes to a place to meet Gideon and to call him in a most unimpressive way and in an unimpressive place. It's a place of compromise. It's a place where false worship had actually been occurring. It's Terebinth tree. And he comes in a time of anxious hurry because you, hear, you see here Gideon threshing wheat in the wine press. And he is evidently, Gideon is, concerned about being seen and plundered by the enemies. The wine press is a, a low-lying spot. Threshing of the grain normally happens on a hillside out exposed to the wind so that the, the grain can be crushed, the heads of grain can be crushed and then thrown up in the air and the wind can throw the chaff away and the kernels of grain fall to the ground. But that's not what he's doing. He's hiding down in this wine press so that he's not going to be seen by the Midianites. And he's got to be in a hurry to get this job done. I mean, the longer he takes to do it, the greater the threat that some Midianite, some Amalekite, somebody from the east is going to see what he's doing and come and steal all his harvest. And so it's a time of anxious hurry. But then the setting for this call also involves it coming from the lips of a mere man? Now, what do I mean by that? The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. Now, you and I know, and the writer who is recording this knows that, this personage that appeared to Gideon was the angel of the Lord. But when Gideon saw him, he didn't see... He didn't see a burning bush. He didn't see a glowing, he didn't see a brightly glowing individual. He didn't see a person with wings on his back and a white robe. He saw a man that just happened to show up all of a sudden here at this terebinth tree. 
Gideon was so involved in what he was doing and threshing the wheat in the, in the, in, in the wine press, he didn't happen to notice this guy walk up and sit down under the terebinth tree. To Gideon, this man looked like just an ordinary man on a journey. In fact, verse 21 tells us that he had a staff in his hand, a walking stick in his hand. And this was not unusual. Uh, there are other appearances in uh, the book of Genesis with Abraham for, exa- Abraham, for example, where the angel of the Lord came and appeared to Abraham. And, and the, one, the one occasion when he's going to go, he's going to tell Abraham about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He and a couple other, a couple other angels are with him, but they, they just look like men. They're in the appearance of men. This could happen in our day, I suppose. I don't, I can't be dogmatic about this, but there was the strangest thing that happened a few months back here in our church. It was, a, it, there was a Sunday, I got to tell you, I was, I was in the pits. I was in the pits. I was in despair. It was an awful day. I felt awful I, in so many ways. And I mean, I, you wouldn't have known it, I hope. You wouldn't have known it. You probably didn't see it. But I, I was discouraged and despairing and all the rest, that stuff. And, and um, just after the beginning of the service, a gentleman walked in. He sat in the back uh, of, the, of the auditorium, back there where the light bulbs are <laughs> right now. By the way, if you want some of those gold globe balls, help yourself. Please, get them out of here. Anyway, he sat down there. And I noticed him walk in, and, and it was, he was obvious. He, um, he was uh, uh, African-American and uh, dressed to the nines. He had a nice suit and tie on, and very unusual for our area, you know. And I thought, okay, I wonder where he's visiting from, you know. I'd... And uh, he sat through the service, and at the end of the service, as soon as the service was over, he made a beeline up here. I mean, I, I didn't even get down to Mrs. Dean. He made a beeline. He met me right down there. And he said, he said, Pastor, he said, you're doing a good work. He said, I appreciate that word today. You're doing a great work. And, and thank you so much for your faithfulness. And he said, I wanted to give you the gift. And he gave me a book and uh, said his name, had his name on the, as the author. He said, I wrote this book. Uh, I think God gave me this and so on and so forth. And, and, and I just wanted you to have it. He said, I'm, I'm an evangelist, and I go speaking in churches all over the place. I said, okay, well, thank you, I appreciate it. And so, and I'm, I wanted to get to the door to greet people as they leave, you know. And um, I appreciated his word of encouragement. And so we kind of walked down the aisle, and before I could get to the back of the pews, he, he got ahead of me, and he, he walked out. And by the time I got back to the door, I'm looking around to see, you know, where's his car? What kind of car is he driving? You know, where's he from? What's his license? I couldn't, couldn't see him anywhere. I saw him nowhere. I thought, man, that is, that's odd. I wonder who this guy was. And I looked in the book. And he said he's an evangelist. He travels around. And I figured, you know, he's got to have his brochure in there. He's got to have his business card. He's got to have something in there to tell me how to get a hold of him. Because surely he wants a meeting. I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's surely what's after, what he's after here. There was nothing. There was no card. There was no address. There was no phone number. There was nothing in there. There was no way of identifying him except the name on the cover of the book. I Googled the name. I couldn't find... I, on Google, you can find anything about anybody, just about, right? I couldn't find anything about this guy. Nothing whatsoever. 
Was this an angel from the Lord? I don't know. I would not be dogmatic to say so. But I will say this. It was at a time when I sure needed a visit from an angel of the Lord, and he had a message on that particular day. If it was, he was just an ordinary guy. And I would not have suspected him to be uh, an angel that I, vi- I entertained unawares, like Hebrews tells us we could, could end up doing. That's what, that's what Gideon saw. He just saw what appeared to be a mere man. What a most unimpressive setting for this call. Nevertheless, the call comes in verses 12 through 16. And it is a startling call. The emphasis of this call is a startling emphasis. I want you to see how the, how the scriptures, the way it's written, focus on the emphasis of the call. Many of you have heard the expression, uh, the, the term before, a chiasm. Verses 12 through 16 form a chiasm. Here's the way a chiasm works. The first verse and the last verse are parallel. The next verse and the next to the last verse are parallel. And then, in this case, there's five verses. The verse in the middle is the focal point of the chiasm. So here's the chiasm in verses 12 through 16. Verse 12 and verse 16 are both about selection and assurance. Selection and assurance. Verse 12, the, Lord sa- the angel of the Lord says, The Lord is with you. Yahweh is with you. Verse 16, he says, I am with you. You're selected, and I'm assuring you of the selection. Verse 13 and verse 15 are about skepticism. Gideon responds to what he's told with skepticism in verse 13. He responds to what he's told with skepticism in verse 15. And then right in the middle, right in the middle, the focal point, the emphasis of this call is verse 14, where the Lord turns to him and says, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent you? The focal point of this call is the sending of this one who is called. Let's look at those little individual components here very quickly. In verse 12, notice how the Lord selects and assures whom he calls. And he doesn't select he doesn't select people because of how they see themselves. He selects people because of how he sees them. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, "The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor." Does Gideon see himself as a mighty man of valor? No, not at all. He sees himself as he is. And he'll tell us what he, how he sees himself in just a few minutes. But the Lord chooses Gideon not because of how Gideon sees himself, because of what Gideon thinks he's capable of doing or anything like that. The Lord chooses Gideon because of how the Lord sees Gideon. He chooses him because of what he sees, the Lord sees. And he assures this one whom he calls, who he chooses, he assures him with the presence of himself. I will be with you because I have chosen you. Well, the response to that selection and assurance is a bitter, bitter skepticism. You see it in verse 13. Gideon says to him, 
oh my Lord, if the Lord's with us, why has all this happened to us? I want you to, I want you to hear the bitterness in his heart that's coming out of his mouth. And by the way, maybe to help us understand Gideon's frame of mind right here, it is probable, it is most likely, that the Midianites have already killed his older brothers. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to chapter 8 and look at verses 18 and 19. This is Gideon. He's talking to Ziba and Zalmunna, a couple of the leaders of the, uh, of, the, of the Midianites. He's captured them, Gideon has. And he says, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then Gideon said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. So Gideon, Gideon is coming at this from the frame of mind that these Midianites have killed my older brothers. And so he comes to, he responds to this call and to the assurance that the Lord is with him with a, uh, with a sort of bitter skepticism. And he's bitter, I think, for several reasons. I think he's bitter because of a faulty theology. First part of verse 13, he says, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? As if, as if God doesn't allow bad things to happen to his people. Like, if the Lord is with us, if the Lord is with us, then what we will experience is always going to be peace and prosperity and comfort. And that is a faulty theology. What Gideon is doing here in expressing that is he's, he's failing to realize or even to consider that the worship of Baal might have something to do with the misery that they're dealing with. He's bitter because of a faulty theology. He's also bitter because of no evident work of God. Where are the miracles that God told us about? And he's bitter because of the Midianite control. Well, these Midianites are taken over and, and have, are ruling us. God has forsaken us, and he's delivered us into their hand. Consequently, because of all this bitterness, he's very skeptical of the Lord's presence. Nevertheless, in verse 14... The Lord calls to send him and to save his people. This, as I said, is the focal point of the call. I am choosing you in your might to save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. I'm sending you to do this. Well, again, he responds with a skewed skepticism now in verse 15. It's not a bitter skepticism, but a skewed skepticism. He says to him, to the angel of the Lord, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. This is a, he, what he's revealing here in his response is a skewed understanding of God. And how many of us have this kind of skewed understanding of God? I think it's prevalent in the church today. The idea that God will use only the greater and not the least that God uses the strongest and not the weakest. That God certainly wants to use somebody 
other than me. It's a skewed understanding of God. It leads him to skepticism. And yet, nevertheless, verse 16, the Lord selects and assures the one he calls. The Lord said to him, surely I will be with you. You shall defeat the Midianites as one man. God promises that his presence will continue. Whether you believe it or not, God promises that his power will enable you, whether you believe it or not. God affirms that Gideon is his choice. You are the one, he says two times in this verse. I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites. Those whom God chooses to lead his erring people out of their misery, he enables them. He empowers them. He will be with them. You may think, you know, I'm nobody special. I'm nobody special. Why, you know, why would the Lord use me for anything? Lord, he wouldn't call me to do anything of any significance in his service. Let me encourage you to let this insight into the ways of the Lord dispel that myth. And when all is said and done, in verse 24, Gideon builds an altar to the Lord and calls it Jehovah Shalom, Yahweh is peace. And it's an altar that lived a long time. Humbly bow before the Lord of peace, the Lord of peace, who will indeed use you, the one whom he calls to be an instrument of his peace. Our Father and our God, I pray today that you would encourage us from this passage of Scripture. May I pray that you'd challenge us from it. There's some here perhaps who see themselves as the Israelites in their misery, maybe needing to realize the, the, the misery being a consequence of sin. Maybe, Father, you're bringing somebody to the bottom of the barrel. Oh, may they look up. May they look up and, and look to you, look to the cross, look to the Savior who will save and rescue and deliver. There may be some here who are despairing and feeling like they can't be used. They can't be anything, doing anything significant for you. We don't have to be great people. We don't have to be strong people. We don't have to be mighty. We don't have to be looked up to in this world to be used effectively as instruments in your hands. Encourage us with that truth, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.